July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles and watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research and I know there's so much more to the story that's never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. And so when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind the scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into 12 seasons. The episodes in season one tell the story of the first trip in 1989. Season two deals with the next expedition in 1991 and so on. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now, let's get to the next episode. Hi, Rick. Last time we were at the end of the 2001 expedition to Niku, and we talked about the artifacts that you found while you were there and how you would identify them and what their significance might be. Can well, you take it from there? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you do. You, you you never know <laughs> what you've found at the time you find it. Hmm. Um, people always have this impression of an Indiana Jones kind of discovery where you part the bushes and you'll see the thing you've been looking for. Yeah. And that's not how it happens. You, If you're lucky, you find something that looks interesting, but you don't know whether it's really interesting or not until you get home and you do the research. And so the great moments of discovery don't happen in the field. They happen sitting in front of your computer or getting the results of a lab report or something. It's That's the way science really happens. <laughs> not quite as glamorous. So we get back and we've got these things that we found in the ground at the seven site. And some of them were very puzzling. There were a couple of little objects we called the Gidgees, for lack, want of a better name to call them. They were very small, less than an inch, aluminum pieces that had one end filed into like teeth as if to grip something. And then a couple of holes, one hole, th through one of the holes was a screw, a obviously a, a wood screw uh -huh. and and these things looked homemade the aluminum bits weren't manufactured they were clearly fashioned by somebody so these were things that somebody had made for some 
purpose. So it's like they would mount onto the end of a of a stick or something for a tool. Well, we had no idea. How many did you find? Like two. Oh, okay. One one was kind of round, kind of round. It wasn't perfectly round, but it was kind of round. And the other one was more rectangular, and that one had been bent. Well, when we got home. We were able to confirm, yes, this is aluminum. Yes, they were not manufactured. And these wood screws are American wood screws. Hmm. You can tell because of the way the, the threads go. Right, right. And they're brass. Okay. So there were American uh, Coast Guardsmen there on the island. And they would have American wood screws. But why would they fashion something like this? We did but, of course, Earhart was American, and one of the things that had been found at the same time the bones were found was a sextant box, which is wooden. Yeah. And there are fixtures in sextant boxes to secure pieces, spare parts right? and, and uh, attachments to the, to the sextant. And maybe this is a specialized homemade way of affixing something. We didn't know, but very odd little objects. We still don't know what they're for. <laughs> we, they're, they're, they're still just the Gidgees. We have no idea. Oh, interesting. Uh, we recovered the food can that we had first found in 1996. And as I think we talked about in an earlier episode, turned out to be a can for Australian canned mutton. Bone in for flavor. It's, oh. uh, we, we matched it up. The, the dimensions of the can are, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a tuna fish can, but, but quite a bit bigger. Uh, and we matched it up with an existing antique label for canned mutton. And then on, I, God, I think it was the 2010 expedition, we actually found the little pieces of, of uh, sheep bone that had been in the... <laughs> <laughs> that had us going for a while. Really? So we're finding little pieces of bone at the seven site, and we get them back and have them analyzed, and they turn out to be sheep bones. So wait a minute. There are no sheep at the seven site. And then, wait a minute, the food can, the canned mutton, of course. Uh, and so mystery solved. Now, who's, whose can of canned mutton was <laughs> could you um, Could you date it? No. And it, it, they were popular in the 1930s. Yeah. But a lot of the the uh, food supplied to the settlers came from Australia. Oh, huh. But of course, Earhart came through Australia, Australia through Darwin, Australia, and there could have just as easily have been a can of canned mutton aboard the Electric. Right. It wouldn't have been in their inventory because so, that, no, that no, we don't have an inventory for what they had with them for that flight. So, geez, okay. <laughs> we found several more. Pieces of crockery, you know, ceramic plate shards. Uh, more target practice? More target practice because <laughs> one of them had a Coast Guard logo on it. So, okay, uh, mystery solved. 30 caliber shells, M1 carbines, broken mess hall crockery, <laughs> and radio tubes. Big radio tubes from the Loran station. Oh. So they're up there blowing old stuff apart. <laughs> okay. But we also found uh, some amber-colored, brown-colored glass hmm. that was kind of odd. Um, couldn't explain it. Maybe Coast Guard-related, maybe not. 
So we just noted where it was, and it was an area that needed more attention. So we were going to go back and and do that on the next trip. Uh. And then we, we we had a piece that really puzzled us. It was a little, maybe only uh, one inch by two inch triangular piece of plate glass, very very thin plate glass. One edge was finished, and the others two edges were broken. Huh. It's almost like window glass, but even thin for window glass. Wow. What the heck could this thing be? Now we we later found out what it was. What? But we'll save that for a later expedition. Oh. <laughs> that that mystery was solved uh, on a later expedition. Uh. So we were generally thinking that okay, we need to come back here. We need to do an even bigger excavation of the seventh site because what we found on this trip make it clear that yeah we we've got the right site here right. and there's more stuff here hmm. we just need to come back and and do a bigger excavation of it so we set out um, the plan for Niku 5 for the summer of 2004 something we had done earlier in 2001 before the expedition was to make a trip to Tarawa the capital of of Kiribati. Mm -hmm. And that was prompted by a report we had from the government in Kiribati that they had recently returned from an expedition to Sydney Island, now called Manra, where there had been a settlement, mm -hmm. just like there had been a Nicomararo. Right. But they said there were there was airplane debris there. There, oh. was, there was a crashed airplane there. How far was that from Nicomaro? A couple hundred miles, oh, okay. like 214 miles, something like that, from huh. Nicomaro. But there was an airplane wreck on Sydney Island. Hmm. Now, we knew that there were reports of a wartime crash on Sydney Island. And we knew what that crash was. It was a C-47 that had hmm. um, hit a palm tree and, and crashed there. But... They had actually recovered a propeller from Sydney Island, and they had it in Tarawa. Hmm. And they thought it might be a propeller from Emily Earhart's airplane. So that thought, might well, have washed there, or well, been carried there. or or maybe Earhart's plane also crashed on Sydney oh, Island. Huh. Maybe there was more than one crash. Yeah. We didn't know. Interesting. We didn't think that was likely, but. God, we've got a, a propeller we could look at. All we have sure. to do is go to Tarawa, which is not the easiest thing in the world. But yeah, <laughs> uh, two of us decided to go, me and uh, a fellow named Van Hun, great mm -hmm. guy. And we also wanted to go to the archives in Tarawa and get better photocopies of the telegrams that we knew were there from uh -huh. Gallagher's time. And we wondered what other records of the settlement might be available there in Tarawa to copy sure so uh, we and your had, original things that you had from there i i forget how did you get them were they faxed they were faxed okay so the, they they were found sort of by accident by a tiger member who was doing research on a book and he came across the files told me about them we got somebody to fax us copies uh, from but they were just faxes right and they they were faxes and we we also wondered what else might be there? Sure. We really wanted to dig into the, the archives. So we had good reason to go to Tarawa. And we did find more information there about the settlement, including hand-drawn maps of the island, dividing the island into districts, oh. assigning, 
assigning. And, and there were several of them over time because land was allocated to the settlers. Hmm. And you'd, you'd find these maps with lines drawn. This piece of land is piece 21, and this one is piece 22. And then there'd be a, a key to the map and said, well, uh, land parcel 21 is allocated to family so-and-so, ah. family names. And we, we had that. Well, what was interesting about that is there was a place down uh, at where we knew as a seven site, that oh. part of the island. None of that land had been allocated to, to families at all. But there was a piece designated there that on the earlier maps, and these date from a couple years after Gallagher died in 1941, one of the, the earliest map had that piece of land assigned to what looked like Comatina, K-O-M-I-T. But that's, remember, in Gilbertese, T-I is pronounced S. Ah. It's Comisna, Commissioner. <laughs> it's government land. Yes. And then in the last map, which was drawn by a district officer by the name of Paul Laxton, that piece of land is designated Karaka, K-A-R-A-K-A, hmm. which is what Laxton said the settlers called Gallagher. Oh. Okay, well, that's really interesting. That directly links that piece of land to Gallagher. But it also <laughs> pointed up a myth that grew up about Gallagher and what the locals called him. We look at the name and normally would pronounce it Gallagher. Right. And so did Laxton, because Laxton never knew Gerald. Mm. He, he came along later. Right. So he looked at the name, pronounced it Gallagher, just like you and I would do. But that's not how Gerald Gallagher pronounced his name. I pronounced it Gallagher when I was speaking with Eric Bevington, the colonial service officer who really didn't know him. And he corrected right. me instantly. He said, no, 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 it, Gallagher. That's oh, how he pronounced huh. the name. The people who were present on the island when Gallagher was there, the settlers yes, were the there, colonists. like Emily Sikuli, mm -hmm. asked her how he was referred to. She said, Kella, ah. K-E-L-A, Kella. Well, Gallagher, Gala. People that speak those languages have a really hard time with English pronunciation. Hmm. Gilbert's comes out Kiribati. Okay. So Gallagher came out Kella. Laxton looked at Gallagher and came up with Karaka. But that that was Laxton. That oh, wasn't the Severs. So that was on the map, but And that was on the map, but it was Laxton's map. Right. Right. So, uh, not that it matters a whole lot, but it's a really Another piece. interesting piece yeah. of, of how things evolve. Hmm. Okay, so we get this information about Nicomororo and its history, and now we, we know that the Seven Site really was the place that Geller set aside. We didn't know what else had happened there after the bones were found. The place obviously had a history, 
because we had found things there that we knew were not associated with a castaway. The Coast Guard stuff. And, right, sure. But the picture's starting to emerge of, hmm. of what the history of the site was like. Meanwhile, recall that the ship that we had started using, that we used on the 1997 trip and the 1999 trip and the 2001 trip, Naya, yeah. the motor sailor out of Fiji, made its living usually taking scuba divers around the Fiji Islands. Ah. And one of their customers was the New England Aquarium that did coral research. Oh, huh. And, of course, the owners of Naya, uh, including Rob Barrell, who had been with us out there in 97, were just blown away by the pristine nature of the reef at Nicomororo. Hmm. It was just this is so much better than any place in Fiji. I mean, this is so uh, beautiful well, untouched, and untouched. Really. Yep. And this is a great place to bring tourists. So they naturally were talking up Nicomororo. And when the people at the New England Aquarium heard about it and said, oh, we need to go there and study this place. Huh. Th this is a place that really needs attention. So the New England Aquarium in 2002 chartered Naya for an expedition to Nicomororo to investigate the reef. Hmm. And that expedition was led by a marine biologist by the name of Greg Stone, Dr. Greg Stone. They get out there and they look at the reef and they're collecting all their data. And very successful trip. And they're on their way home. They're, they're sailing back to Fiji aboard Naya. And they're sitting around the, the dining table aboard Naya and Greg says, casually to Rob, he says, boy, I'll bet that, that wheel uh, there at the, in, the, uh, in the main passage really gave Rick's people at Tiger. The uh, wheel? Really? An exciting time. <laughs> hmm. Rob says, what are you talking about? What wheel? Oh, yeah, you know, you know it's, it's right there. It's maybe 10 feet off the shoreline in the main oh, passage. Geez. He says, what wheel? What are you talking about? Yeah, there's a wheel out there, and and it's it's obviously not a a, a car or a truck wheel. There's no tire. It's the center part of the wheel, and it's just kind of standing there, and it was cemented to the coral. It's about the size of an airplane wheel, and I figured the Tiger people would really be interested in it, but obviously it doesn't mean anything because it's still there. Rob says, they never said anything about seeing a wheel. What are you talking about? <laughs> No, no, I went out and I looked at it and I tugged at it, but it was kind of cemented to the reef. It must have been there for a while. And uh, I just figured, you need to call Rick when you get home. <laughs> so Greg did. I get this phone call from Greg Stone. He tells me this. I said, Greg, you need to meet me in uh, Windsor Locks, Connecticut at the New England Air Museum. And we're going to look at airplane wheels. Hmm. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so... Greg met me at the New England Air Museum, and we walked around the museum looking at different airplane wheels. And he said, eh, it was kind of like this, but no, it was bigger than that one. No, it wasn't like that one. It's just, yeah, it, it, it was a pretty much like that one right there. <laughs> On Lockheed Electra. Jeez. I said, oh, my God. I don't and know nobody how. nobody photographed it or he, anything? He, no, he didn't have a camera with him. Uh -huh. He he just assumed that we had seen it and dismissed it. <laughs> oh, and I don't know if it was there when we were there and we just missed it or whether it arrived later. Well, I, what did 
had they had good visibility when they were there diving? Yeah, yeah. It, and you you wouldn't need to dive to see this. This is ten feet down in clear water. It's yeah. not, no, it's not ten feet. It's ten feet out from the shoreline. Oh, geez, it's like in like a foot of water. Oh, you're kidding! I mean, it's right friggin' there, <laughs> and uh, that's why he couldn't believe we we hadn't seen it, and I couldn't either because how long would it take to be cemented in the coral reef? Good question, yeah. and we don't know for sure, hmm. but. Jeez, you know, well, we, did you go? What happened? What about that? Well, our, our thinking, did you schedule well, that? <laughs> we need to get back there and, you know, like ASAP. Really? We, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's one thing to have somebody who was there as a teenage girl and saw wreckage out on the reef and, right. remi- and says, Yeah, I saw that. It's another thing to have somebody this week who saw a PhD. <laughs> Marine biologist <laughs> who a few months ago said, wow. "Okay, we got to get back out there." Um, and so this is after you're back from well, 2001. Well, but and, you're planning. It's it's uh, yeah, it's early 2003. Oh, okay. Because New England Aquarium's out there in 2002. Oh, okay. They get back and we do the research about what wheel might have been. Yeah. We got to okay. So it's early 2003. What's Naya doing? Well, Naya is thinking, yeah. Well, we don't want to. We want to go back out to Nicomararo with with tourists because it's such a great place, and we've got a trip scheduled for like March of this year. Oh, March of two thousand three. Candy, yeah. We're gonna go back out there, except we don't have enough passengers yet to justify the trip. We got to have a minimum number of passengers to make sure. it worthwhile. Yeah. And I said, well, how about we piggyback on your tourist trip? We'll fill in the missing passengers you need to make the trip because we don't need a huge team sure. to go out there to check this out. And we'll go along with you. And yeah, that'll work. Okay, <laughs> so we're good. This isn't going to be NICU 5. So it's another preliminary expedition. This is yes. going to be NICU 5P. <laughs> okay, whatever. Well, <clears throat> that was a good plan. I know. But if you think back to what happened in March of 2003... Uh, on the world stage, it became obvious to everyone that the United States was about to start a war. Mm. And those non-Tiger participants in the Naya trip suddenly discovered conflicts in their schedules and regions. They didn't want to be out of the country when God knows what's going to happen when we roll into Iraq. So Naya had to cancel the trip. Oh, jeez. Boom. Shoot. Now what? Okay, plan B. (laughs) We just need a small team out there. And there's a sailboat for charter. A fella out of New Zealand. It's a nice nice sailboat. Handle a a small team. It's not powered. It's a pure sailboat. Oh. But that's that's okay. How did you Uh, discover that? take, Take a little longer. What was your question? How did you discover that? How did we? Well, okay. Or did he keep it? Yeah, we we discovered that through a Tiger member in New Zealand, Mm a gentleman named Howard Aldred, who was a coral reef geologist who had joined Tiger and was really dedicated to the project. He He would fly from New Zealand to Delaware to participate in our 
uh, research meetings. Oh, that wow. Howard was was a hoot. I mean, he's a great guy, very knowledgeable. And what a resource! And he, he would have been. really knew. He he's the guy that looked at our piece of aluminum, two two V one, the panel of aluminum, yeah, and said these are coral accretions on this thing, and we can test that. And he tested it with uh, acid, and said, yeah, uh, this is this is this is coral. And for this to be here, it means this thing was submerged in shallow water where coral could grow for a considerable period of time. Oh, interesting. Uh, so whatever this thing is and wherever it came from, it was in shallow water and, and with coral growing on it. Hmm. Um, Howard, Howard's trademark was um, extremely loud ties, neckties. Uh. He'd always wear a necktie. None of the rest of us ever wore neckties. Howard always wore a what necktie? Out on Nico and no, no, like, not not on Nico. Oh, no, but it, it like at, on the air at the airport. It, and the, yeah, it, at the research meetings, you sit around, and it was a standing joke. Well, okay, what kind of tie is Howard going to show up in <laughs> next? But Howard was from New Zealand, and when this crisis arose with oh, Naya is not going to be available, he had this connection in New Zealand with this sailboat, uh-huh. and made arrangements. Was he planning on going? Well, we wanted him to. Yeah. We said, okay, we, Howard, we need you, and we'll uh, have three other Tiger members. We'll have John Klaus and Van Hun and Walt Holm, and you guys will go aboard this boat. It's called Molly. Huh. It was owned by a guy and his wife who had a seven-year-old daughter, Molly, oh. <laughs> who also sailed with them. She went on the trip. Oh, she was apparently fun. a wonderful kid. Uh, and you didn't go Oh, I, 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 this is the only tiger trip to Niku that I didn't go on. <laughs> hmm. So the plan was for Molly, the sailboat, to meet the team in Apia, Samoa. Uh. Our team was going to fly through Hawaii on Hawaiian Air, down to Pongo Pongo, American Samoa, as we had done in the past. And then they'd just catch a little commuter flight over to Apia, board Molly, and go on up to Niku. Great plan. Except Hawaiian Air upgraded their fleet. They had been using DC-10s, big, wide-body airplane, three-engined, sits up high off the ground. Yeah. They upgraded to the Boeing 767 Mm. twin engine, but the engines are down close to the runway. Uh. And the runway at Pongo was old and in need of refurbishment, and there were a lot of pieces of pavement and stuff being thrown up by aircraft. And the FAA had a concern about foreign object damage. They decertified the runway. Oh, gosh. So now there's no air service into Pongo. Shh. Shoot. Now what? Okay. So we had to delay the expedition for several months until the runway was refurbished. They were, they were quick about it, faster than we thought they would. And as soon as the runway was ready, we could move forward. Well, we have to have a Caribus representative, like we always like always, do. Yeah. always. And the plan was for the Caribus representative to fly from Tarawa to Christmas Island. Hmm which is on the other side of Kiribati, several thousand miles. But there was airline service from Christmas to Hawaii. Now, there's no, there was no and is no airline service from Tarawa to Hawaii. 
you have to go <laughs> through Christmas or through Fiji. So the plan was for him to go through Christmas. Hmm. He gets to Christmas, and then there's some huge follow-up with the airlines at Christmas, and now there's no service from Christmas to Hawaii. Oh, and we're down to the last week, oh. and we can't get our Carabas rep. Uh, and oh. he had already arrived? Oh, and... he had already arrived in oh, Christmas, geez. and we're back and forth trying to communicate with him by phone and fax and with the airlines, and there's, uh, it's just not going to happen. He's not going to be there in wow. time for us to make all these connections. So in desperation, I got on the phone to the government in Kiribati mm. at very high levels, and I said, look, guys, you know, as you know, we have been entirely cooperative with you and had Caribous reps on every one of our trips and paid their way and so forth. And we're happy to do it this time, but it's just not working. It, it's, we, we need a waiver. We, we need you to let us go without a Caribous rep. It's a small expedition. They'll only be there for a few days, but we've got to do this. <laughs> and bless their hearts they said they okay. agreed really they they agreed wow wave all the rules yeah go ahead do your trip wow just be careful well you had a history yeah well of course we'll be careful <laughs> jeez so we we did that and they went and, so what happened well they couldn't find a wheel gone it was gone of course all we had was a description of where Greg had seen it. Yeah. And the landmarks involved uh, a palm tree that grew in a kind of a strange way, came up and then took a right angle turn and went out over the main passage and then went up like a... A dog uh, leg. A, yeah, like a palm tree with a dog leg in it. <laughs> and we, we called it shark tree because sharks used to like to hang out in the shade under oh. that tree. So that, that was shark tree. And Greg knew the tree we were talking about. He says, well, it's so many meters to the west of that tree. Uh, and it's about 10 feet out. And they searched oh. and searched. And there's nothing there. But they also noted all along that shoreline that in that interim, just that one-year interim between 2002 and 2003, there had been another big storm come through and just cleaned out uh, that whole end all the beachfront vegetation a lot of the palm trees along that area including the shark tree oh, had had the roots exposed uh -huh. it's uh, really a lot of damage and they just all they could figure was that that tremendous surge through the passage had dislodged that wheel and carried it probably somewhere out into that lagoon uh -huh. Or maybe it washed up on the shoreline. Maybe it's there back in the the, hmm. the bush. So they well, had to search it back. Back in the well, they had metal detectors with them, so they went back in the 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 washed over area and sure and did a really intense search. Didn't find the wheel, but they found something else. Hmm. They found three pieces that were quite clearly aircraft structures similar to the thing we had found in 1989 that we called a dado. Uh, this uh, like panel that goes along the fuse, the uh, cabin wall between the cabin wall and the floor. Mm. And that, that's what we figured it was. But here are several more of these things. Uh, not as complete as the one we found in 89, but we could still tell these things kind of hook together. 
So this was a whole series of structures that went along a cabin wall. We really need to know what the inside of a Lockheed Electra looked like. Ah. Were there dados in Lockheed Electras? And if there were, what did they look like? Well, that's the kind of question we'd always had trouble answering. When you're, you're trying to find out if an artifact is from a particular type of airplane, you have to find an original airplane that hasn't been restored and rebuilt. Right. Because if it's been restored, you have no way of knowing hmm. whether it's been altered in any way. We've got to find a Lockheed Electra that had ha, hasn't been touched and it's got to be pretty much intact the cabin's got to be intact hmm. well that's a tall order really and howard said well we've got an electric crash here in new zealand there's an electric that ran into a mountain mount richmond and i can get up there and and see what's left and he did he helicoptered oh. in up there but that airplane impacted that uh, that mountaintop going full chat. Oh, I mean, it so was it was no intact scattered, cabin. wrinkled wreckage. He took a whole bunch of pictures and stuff. And this might have been a part of a dado. I think I don't know. It's, oh. But it really didn't help much. Where are we going? Well, there's a publication put out the Journal of the American Aviation Historical Society. Their summer of 1971 issue had a whole accounting of Lockheed Model 10 Electras, all 138 of them, I think. Oh, of what happened to them? Oh, uh, yeah. When they were built, when they were delivered, who owned them and what became of them. Wow. To the extent that they knew. Yeah. Most of them are accounted for and they don't exist anymore. And the ones that do exist, we know where they are in their museums. But there was this one that was lost in 1943, mm -hmm. but it was built in 1936. Uh -huh. So it's, it's an early Electra, lost in 1943, uh, up in back of Ketchikan, Alaska. Ah. In what is now the Misty Fjords Wilderness Area, mm. middle of nowhere way in the back country, up high in the mountains. And the story is that it was a, a Lockheed Electra flown by a, a company to take employees back and forth between Ketchikan and their main office, which was in, I believe, either Seattle or uh, Vancouver. Oh. But, but that's a long haul. Yeah. And they had installed an extra fuel tank, in the cabin. They, oh. they had a fuselage fuel tank, just one. But the only Electra other than Earhart's and the other Tenny Special is that the only other Electra that had a, a, a fuselage tank. Hmm. And the story was they, they had, uh, I think, five passengers aboard and had run into a snowstorm and radio trouble. And the pilot ended up putting the airplane into the trees. Hmm. And everybody survived, although wow. the, there was a woman passenger who had a severe foot injury and she ended up bleeding to death before they could mm. help her. The pilot of that Electra was a man named Harold Gillum, who was a famous Alaskan bush pilot. Oh. Uh, he was known as uh, Chillum Spillum But Don't Killum Gillum. <laughs> All kinds of stories about his exploits. Very, very famous pilot 
Gillum, after a few days, decided to, to try to walk out and get help. Mm. And he didn't make it. They Where later, were they? Like, how far were they from help? Uh, a long way from uh-huh. any help. I mean, miles and miles and miles. I mean, that's mm-hmm. it's it's a really remote area. But the authorities knew that they were missing, and they were searching for them. But the weather had been bad, so they uh-huh. they couldn't search. the The Coast Guard was up there searching with aircraft, and they had a, a ship standing by. The Coast Guard eventually did rescue the other passengers. But Gillum was lost. Uh. Okay, so there's a Lockheed Electra sitting up there, mostly intact. So it didn't... Untouched. It, it, land, it crash-landed. It crash-landed. So, he so he kind of mushed it into the treetops. Yeah. Hmm. And it's kind of on the bank of a ravine, uh, rough country, but the airplane was mostly intact. You could, you could see it from the air. Ah. Uh. You could see the wreck from the air, but you couldn't land a helicopter up there because it's a wilderness area. You couldn't go in oh. there with any kind of vehicle. You couldn't land a helicopter up there. And the only way in was on foot. Wow. Okay. So we need <laughs> to put a team in there on foot to see if they can get up to the wreck and... Uh, and that's see if there are dados in that airplane <laughs> and see if we've got an artifact that matches something in a Lockheed Electra. Wow. And we, we put together a team. It was uh, Bill Carter, John Klaus, Walt Holm, and Gary Quigg. And they had a couple of guys from Fish and Wildlife that went along, one of whom had a big rifle with them because it's bear country. <laughs> right. And they flew in in a de Havilland beaver on floats mm-hmm. and were dropped off and started hiking up the mountains. Wow. And next time we'll talk about oh. how they made out. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> yeah. It's quite an adventure story. Okay, God, it would have to be. Yep. Wow. Well, thank you, Rick. We'll look forward to next time. You betcha. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.